Welcome to 52% Productions. Our goal is to highlight the stories of those marginalized by the traditional U.S. history canon, examine their inclusion in the public sphere, and educate ourselves along the way through open dialogue. On this episode, we will focus on language and why words matter, with our special guest, UK educator, Annabelle Pemberton. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to 52% Productions. Thank you so much for joining me, Margie, and my good, good friend, Lee Jameson. Hi! (laughs) (laughs) We have an amazing episode for you this week. We're going to talk about something that I won't say that it uh, splits museum professionals, but in some ways it could. And that topic is language. Language is important. Words language, matter. Words matter. And we're going to talk today about a few of the choice words that we feel like are very important, especially to history and contextualizing history and unpacking history. Um, and also some ways that you can be a bit more intentful with your words when talking about our history. We need to be more specific, right? Sometimes when we're talking about specifically the institution of slavery, we're addressing it in this very general monolithic way. And although I I love to use the term slavery as slavery as slavery, I usually am using it in a very specific context. But when we're talking about slavery as it pertains to the history of the world, the history of civilization, as it were, we have to be a little bit more specific when we're talking about American slavery because it was so much different from, let's say, biblical slavery. Totally different purpose, totally different time frame, totally different experiences for the people that went through it. But when you're just saying the word slavery, now for Americans, that means something very, very specific. But in the context of talking about our specific history in relation to the world, we can be more intentful by referring to it, in my opinion, (laughs) anyway, as either chattel slavery or American slavery. Um, Because slavery has existed for ever. (laughs) So being being more specific in this context really just pinpoints um, exactly what you're talking about and draws a very specific picture. Uh, sadly, even being that specific, when you say American slavery, people, their brains are probably going to go to cotton fields full of black bodies toiling in the sun, but American slavery is still so much more than that. But at least being specific in that regard can open up a larger conversation about what slavery, American slavery, is and was. Another way that we can be more specific and to also uh, honor people, to honor their existence, honor their humanity, is if we can, it's difficult because African countries, as we know them today, did not necessarily have the names that they have now back when the transatlantic slave trade was happening. But if we can 
talk about the general region or name the country as it is named today to talk about where people came from. Uh, it draws a better picture of how far they might have traveled, how far they might have been forced to walk, how displaced they became. Or then we can look and talk about the history of that country or the history of that region and why those particular things happen. Um, the purpose of being more specific, as I said, is just making sure that we're not looking at these things in a vacuum. We're not looking at them as a monolith because, I mean, that's the whole purpose of this podcast, right, Lee, to talk about the nuance and the layers. It, it's very easy to use a word without thought behind it. Um, and when you mentioned the idea that American slavery brings on a very certain mental image, it's because in my opinion, the predominance of education in the United States is about a very specific, small, antebellum time frame in those couple of decades leading up to the Civil War. And as we've already discussed in our timeline, um, enslavement uh, was centuries old before we even got to that war. So yes, I think that one of the one of the primary topics of uh, language choice and language shift is that change between talking about slaves and talking about the enslaved. Yes, absolutely. And this, that was kind of a, a source of animosity is the wrong word, but I'll use the word tension. It was a source of tension in the museum community because for a long time people felt like slave was sufficient. But the problem with the word slave is it removes the person's humanity and it turns it into something that they are, something that they've always been, as opposed to something that was inflicted upon them. So referring to someone as enslaved as opposed to a slave uh, puts the fault on on someone else or some other entity. It's something that happened to them. It's something that was put upon them. They are an enslaved person, a person that has been enslaved, not just a slave, which makes a huge difference because these were people. They were individuals with lives, loves, and experiences just like all of us today. We are so excited to have a guest on the podcast today and a special guest at that. This is Annabelle Pemberton, who is joining us all the way from the UK. Uh, I encountered Annabelle's tweet a couple of months ago. She is a teacher and she was talking about language with her grade eight students, around 14. And just what we were talking about, Margie and I were talking about with this, the shift in language from slave to enslaved. So Annabelle, um, welcome to 52%. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, and yeah, honestly, I was, I'm very kind of honored to be asked to, to talk with you guys. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. This project that you did, this tweet is like, is, is right on brand right on point for this episode. It was almost the inspiration, we might say. Um, oh. We knew that we wanted to talk about language, but when we saw this exercise that you did with your students, we were like, yes, we absolutely have to do this. And we, we have this opportunity to speak to this person that has already put it into action. It is a continued challenge to try and convince people why it's important to shift 
our language when it comes to history, specifically when it comes to talking about enslaved people. I would love to hear about your inspiration behind having your students do this exercise and talk a little bit more about their responses to it, maybe about the conversation that came about after you had them do this exercise. Yeah, sure. The inspiration kind of stuck for a long time ago um, when I first kind of started encountering these um, nuances around language and history. So I did my undergrad in history at the University of Bristol. And in my third year, um, I did a module on kind of yeah, the transatlantic slave trade. And one of my essays, when the first one I did, the feedback I got was kind of, well, part of the feedback I got was around the language. And instead of kind of use, using the word slave to, you know, the implications of that and why you should maybe shift to using the words like enslaved people. And I don't know, that really kind of struck a chord with me kind of personally and like historically. And from that, um, that was a few years ago because I finished my undergrad in 2018. Just ever since I've kind of been really passionate about it. And now um, that I've started to teach something that I really not just with like that term but also just language and historical language in general I really want students to be thinking about because I wasn't it was the first time I came across that when I was 21 and I really want students to have the opportunity to kind of think historically around language from a much earlier age because I would have loved that and I think it's really important um so then the tasks I designed it was the kind of lesson sequence was around the abolition of the slave trade and it was kind of my first lesson with them within that. I'd done a few with other teachers. And I kind of, again, I've noticed in the other lessons I'd seen with them, I hadn't necessarily taught kind of the language they were using. And I think it was so important to me. I really wanted, you know, the first thing that I did with them to be, let's look at the language we use. Like, what does it mean? Like, why is it important? And why should we maybe shift um, from slave to enslaved people? I was kind of worried when I was like designing this, like less than the task, you know, would it be kind of like too much for them to grasp because they are only yeah, year eight. Um, and I doubt they'd kind of come across much to do with language and history before. But yeah, I started the lesson off with it. So from the get go, they could start thinking about that and kind of, I guess, like scaffolded the task. So gave them kind of examples to get them thinking about you know how it, how it sounds when you use slavers and slave people some historians viewpoints and then some kind of pictures and then they were answering some questions and honestly I was, I was amazed by that response it was so kind of moving for me because they were so engaged and they really understood just how kind of meaningful it is and by kind of reclaiming this language and thinking about the terms that you use you're almost kind of making a statement and really kind of especially within this context within slave people versus slaves kind of giving them back their identity and yeah so it was amazing to see kind of students especially at that age interacting with that and ever since that lesson they've been like continuously using the term or like if they someone says kind of like slaves or whatever they'll correct themselves and it's, it's really good to see that that's kind of had a continued impact it wasn't isolated to one lesson so yeah. That's awesome that they have that awareness now that they can carry into other parts of history and into other conversations. That's really amazing. So with language and this particular exercise, um, 
did you did you make a specific decision to focus on this language shift and are there other ones that you considered or uh, different sort of of language shifts that you're interested in also introducing to to this grade uh, especially within kind of the sequence of lessons yeah I, I kind of made that decision I thought was really important to get them yeah, thinking about the terms they were using and the appropriateness and kind of the meaning behind them and also because they are quite young obviously they don't really want to get too complex before although I kind of feel like if anything I maybe underestimated them because they you know handled it so well and I, I learned a lot from that in terms of kind of yeah what you can do with students if, if you do present it to them in the right way I think maybe kind of when you do come across maybe even more like sensitive terms like in history, um, in source material, stuff like that, like the N words or um, the word Negro and there's other stuff, not just in kind of black history, but other histories as well. Yeah, so I think it's so important in history when you come across these terms to to explain them to students and, and then they can, you know, go out and be educate outside of the classroom as well when they come across these terms. Um, I love that you, the thing that caught my eye is that you, uh, uh, you tweeted out some of the images of the exercise so that I, <laughs> I was able to read some of the student responses and they're exactly what you want them to be. They're right on point. Yeah. They're understanding that it's shifting from being an object to being a human with this simple language shift. Um, and, uh, I was also really struck that you, it didn't seem to get a whole lot of pushback on Twitter, uh, mm -hmm. when you made the decision to put it up there. Um, and that might be just because of how our bubbles are. Um, yeah. I saw it because I follow Alice Proctor, who's part of the detox museum movement the Cologne, uh, she's, uh, she does the uncomfortable art tours, um, yeah. in London. Yeah. She's fabulous. Um, uh, but did you get pushback from administration or from parents or um, even from the students who didn't understand why this was something that they needed to spend any time on? Um, not at all, to be honest. Um, and the teachers within the department I was working with were really also kind of happy about it. And they said they're gonna use it moving forwards, um, you know, future lessons and when they do this again next year. But again, I think that is probably a reflection on the school um, and the class that I do have are, are so passionate kind of about these things. And when they do respond, it isn't necessarily always just historical. It's really kind of personal that they say they're kind of so like kind of convicted about, you know, this is wrong, like we should use this thing. And yeah, so I think I don't know if it's necessary. I've just really got lucky with the class and, and the department I'm working with. But yeah, I didn't come across really any pushback. Maybe um, in some responses, students were still not fully, fully grasping kind of why it's so important and, and why we use these terms, but there was no negative pushback as such. That's inspiring. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely inspiring because as I said at the start, there are absolutely people, at least in the states, and like you said, you're you're only speaking from the um, from the context of the school that you're working in. But there's definitely, 
I won't say a lot, but there is some pushback uh, that Lee and I have definitely gotten in regards to shifting this language. Yeah, that's interesting because even even if you don't fully understand or or relate to the the reasons behind why this language is being changed, to actively kind of go against it, that is making a sort of statement, as you said. Yes. It's, um, I'm, I'm fascinated that um, the, the education focus or the education entree into the slave trade from a UK perspective, it um, puts a lot of emphasis on the abolition movement. Um, uh, you know, we, <laughs> in the United States, we fought a whole war about it. And so there are still feelings uh, in certain quarters. The idea that the mother country of England um, kind of puts the blinders on so that there's only this single focus is fascinating to me. And I also see that you, um, that you are connected with Uganda and um, uh, the education there. Um, and so I'm really fascinated by your personal connection. And I also maybe looked at your dissertation. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated with your personal attachment and your personal journey on, on the teaching of, of enslavement to, uh, to younger people. Um, what sorts of differences have you noticed in, in, in your track? Cause I also saw that, um, uh, with the grouping of your classmates coming out of uni, that um, uh, your topic for your dissertation was the only one that was focusing on the Black history, the Black legacy out of your group. Um, I'll just kind of the first part of what you said first, in terms of yeah, how Britain remembers um, their involvement in slavery. I think I think because there's no there's not as much kind of physical like material culture left behind in terms of you know plantations and and stuff like that it's a lot kind of maybe easier to to do that to turn a blind eye and, and just focus on on the good stuff um, but it is really interesting because again, in, in my final year at Bristol, I also did another unit on Bristol and the slave trade. Um, and as part of it, we did a walk and tour through Bristol. And, and there's a quote, I think, that someone says, you know, that uh, Bristol is built on the slave trade. And, and it's, it is crazy kind of as you're walking around how much of this kind of environment and, and the buildings and the scenery and the history behind it has been you know, probably wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for um, money from the slave trade and um, the legacies of that. So, yeah, again, as I said earlier, I think it's, it's a lot more covert in Britain because it's not so in your face. It's only when you, I guess, kind of make the effort to educate yourself and look around and question your environment um, that you expose yourself to these things. Whereas, yeah, I guess in places like the Caribbean and America where slavery was taking place um, in its kind of most um, like explicit form, it's, it's easier to kind of 
from a British perspective, because we don't have that to try and like disconnect yourself from it. Um, yeah, and even with teaching history, I think the traditional way of doing it in terms of like black people in slavery has has always been black people is kind of always having some sort of struggle. So it kind of goes from slavery and then to the civil rights movement. Um, and there's no almost, you don't ever encounter them as just normal people or like in a different context. It's not focusing on this kind of all these terrible things that happened to them and they're having to, you know, have a deal with that or fight back. Um, so yeah, I think there is definitely a shift within the history teaching community away from that. And I do think it's really important to teach slavery and to teach civil rights in the right way. But I do think you should also encounter um, black people in different ways in history. So for example, in my school, we do a unit on um, like African kingdoms and Benin and like Mansa Musa and stuff. So we're kind of actively trying to do that already, but there's still a lot to be done, I think. And even students probably in like year 10, year 11, they didn't do that. It's only a recent change to curriculum. Um, yeah. So in talking about slave versus enslaved, there's another word that sometimes falls into that uh, same equation as well. And that's the word servant, which some people feel like is interchangeable, but... It's, it's an interesting... <laughs> it, uh, in, we're going to say interesting a lot in this episode, <laughs> I think. Yeah. The term servant was used in the 19th century when white people were talking about their enslaved laborers. Um, and in the eras of what I'm going to say polite white society, so, you know, up until yesterday, um, servant <laughs> sometimes is still used in certain circles as code. You mentioned language in museums, and I think language in tourism is is goes hand in hand with all of this just as a as a as a quick example of the servant conversation if anyone has ever been to boston i go to boston a fair amount um uh in tourism uh for my job with that and in boston is the granary burial ground where famous bostonites are buried like um crispus attucks just to pick a name um so the the those uh, killed and uh, known as the, the, from the Boston Massacre are buried there. The most famous gravesite there though is John Hancock. And it's not the original stone, it's a very large edifice. Um, and right next to it uh, is a very small stone, original, that says his servant Frank, or says Frank, his servant. Frank doesn't have a last name. Mm. Servant is uh, a euphemism mm -hmm. in that very particular instance of John Hancock being a slave owner, being an enslaver of Frank. Servant implies willingness, compensation. It implies employment and not force, which is why the word is is still used frequently. So. I think it's used by people who are uncomfortable saying slave. 
yes. or, or in, are uncomfortable in the context of their audience. Yes. Um, and that's why they default to this weird code word. Mm. But it takes away, and, and I, I fully understand that. I fully understand people being <laughs> uncomfortable with, especially in tourism, being uncomfortable or making your guests uncomfortable. But friends, there is, is growth in discomfort. Growing is uncomfortable. So we need to grow and we need to be uncomfortable make yourselves and each other uncomfortable with these uncomfortable facts about these people that lived extremely uncomfortable lives. Yes. Call them what they were, enslaved people. Using the correct terminology, remembering that words are important, calling them enslaved people honors the experiences that these people went through. In your um, work, Margie, have you ever had pushback when you make the choice to say enslaved rather than slave, have you ever had uh, a guest push back on you about that? I've had people definitely ask why. They'd say, you know, oh, when, when you start calling them that kind of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's a moment of, of, you know, having to unpack it and explaining it. Yes, I, I have had pushback. Can I tell my, my favorite little story about it? Yes, please do. So I, uh, I was giving a tour uh, to a couple um, and a private tour of Arlington National Cemetery. And Arlington, of course, was created out of the former plantation that was owned at the time by Robert E. Lee and, and his wife, uh, passed down to the wife, um, and of course, as a Virginia plantation uh, on, on the eve of the American Civil War, it was uh, worked by enslaved laborers, domestic and field. And uh, that's pretty much all the talk in the entire two and a half hours that we spent together was me talking about this, this one small moment was about talking about the, the Arlington house and the plantation with the enslaved people. One of the guests, the, the husband of the, of, of the couple, apparently had been stewing about my using the term enslaved for the entire two and a half hours that we were together. And at the end of the tour, um, just before he gave me my gratuity, needed to let me know that he is fed up with all of us lefties and liberals needing to change the truth and that they were slaves and he was very adamant about not using and I tried to explain well sir in academia and scholarship for several decades now we've been having this I know all about all of that okay <laughs> and so you know I just had to sit there and thank him very much for his feedback because um, we are in uh, guest service mm -hmm. relations. Uh, and I started really thinking about why someone would need to have a Waterloo moment about this word and changing it from slave to enslaved. And um, I, I don't know how it sounds when I say it, but I feel like the reason some people get so um, 
dug in about needing to refer to people as slaves is because they still want to see people of color, black people in this country as property, as things, as, mm -hmm. as items and not as human beings. And that's the only reason I can come up with. I'd love to hear if there's another reason. Mm. Um, I'm always ready for education, but I just can't see any positive reason why someone would need to push back on giving humanity to, uh, to people. In this moment, just trying to imagine like a scenario where, where that would make sense. And it, and it doesn't, you know, in my, in the back of my brain, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe it's because there is this, he felt as if there was a, a power and a gravity behind the word slave that was going to be as impactful as it needed to be. But if you're explaining to him that using that word strips people of their humanity and turns them into property and turns them into objects, then that's, that should be where the conversation ends. So it, it, it's difficult to understand. And it does absolutely feel like the, the want for, for the language to not change is, is uh, rooted in, in, in racism and white supremacy and, and, and all of those terrible, ugly things. It's very unfortunate to think about. I wish I could see an alternative answer, but I, I don't. Yeah, I feel, I feel the same. The flip side of that, and I'm sure he would have had a whole lot to say, uh, or maybe he did, or maybe he was so fixated on enslaved that he probably didn't hear you refer to uh, the owners of those people as enslavers and not masters or slave owners, because um, that's another shift that is trying to happen. I remember some months back in the quarantine times, there were a few articles floating around where people were like talking about the uh, origination of master bedroom. And it started this whole conversation about the word. I said to myself, that is, that's an interesting take. I, I have not fully done the research to find out whether or not that is in fact true. However, I do think that the language of master does need to shift to enslaver. There's context, right? So yes. con context is key. And you can have a headmaster at a school. Mm -hmm. um, and that has to do, I have a master's degree. And that's, right. um, that's about achieving uh, a certain level of education and mastering uh, a skill. Um, right. The word so master existed before people referred to themselves as masters on plantations. And I think that is the thing that is most important to think about in the context of that yes. particular conversation. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> because words evolve and change over time, um, but context is key. And, you know, there's a whole field of linguistics and etymology about finding out why words came into existence and how they came into existence. And Sometimes I think people will latch on to the most recent um, iteration of sentiment when it comes to a word. Words mm -hmm. are loaded, you know? There's yeah. a reason the pen is mightier than the sword, right? Mm -hmm. Oof. 
<laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. But as far as enslaver versus master is concerned specifically, this switch is an attempt to no longer normalize the dehumanization and ownership of people. That idea of what a master is has been the master of the people on the plantation. So when we start to refer to these, these men and women that owned people as enslavers, then we can, we can remove that stigma from the word master. That means many, many things. And enslaver is very specifically a person that owns people. I think that um, that this this particular um, journey of of language um, it's it's in a transition period right now, and I catch myself making the mistake. Mm. Um, master is something that I that I think I erased from my lexicon at you know at at a certain point of adulthood. Um, uh, remember, I'm a Gen Xer, and. And for, for some time, I have made the effort to say owner so that it is that sense of acknowledging that there was this um, bondage relationship, mm -hmm. but I am moving into enslaver and I don't always get it right. I think on the first, on our first podcast episode, um, I refer to owner, slave owner, mm -hmm. um, but enslaver is is the role of that human to the enslaved other human in, mm -hmm. in the, the contract between the two. So. Yeah. And it's going to, it's going to take time. I'm sure that there will be someone who listens to this podcast and is like, Oh, I've never even heard anybody mention that before. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's things to consider. The reality of the matter is all of these things are true, but the more we can shift away from uh for lack of a better phrase, the old language, the kind of glamorized language of slavery, then we can move into a more honest and specific discussion about what the institution of slavery was. Are there other words and phrases that you think we should retire because mm. they aren't giving the, the right weight or gravitas or impact into what is actually being described or discussed. Mm. Well, another one that I have here is uh, about the way that we refer to enslaved people that have run away. And we generally refer to them as rebels or fugitives or runaway slaves because that's what books have told us to refer to them as. Um, but some alternatives that people are proposing are freedom fighter or seeker, which sounds a lot more modern um, but is really more so what these people were doing. How would you feel about escapee? That makes sense also, assuming that they were able to fully escape, you know, because right. most people were not. But I think referring to these people as fugitives or runaways implies that they did something. I mean, yes, the act of them... Uh, absconding from their situation is wrong in huge air quotes, according to the people that own them. But in regards to them taking agency over their lives and what their agenda was, they were looking to liberate themselves from this very terrible situation. So the, the implication that they have done something wrong is the part of the, the title that doesn't sit well with me. 
Right. Um, I get that they did something wrong according to the people that own them, but in the grand scheme of morality and, uh, and taking agency over your own life, they were just doing what any human being would do in that situation. Yeah. I'm trying to stop saying union army when I'm mm. discussing anything that has to do with the American civil war, because I feel like if there's an otherness by saying union, it kind of puts the people fighting for the U.S. Army, which is how I'm shifting my language on that. Instead of saying mm -hmm. Union Army, I say U.S. Army. Um, so you refer to them as the, the Confederate Army and the U.S. Army. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it seems like a, why would you even bother? But Union makes it feel like, like an otherness. And um, uh, the Confederacy took up arms against the U.S., United States of America and that that should not um, there should be a question in equalizing the US Army and the Confederate Army when you say Union Union doesn't feel like us doesn't feel like the United States it feels like this other group of people mm -hmm. just like the Confederacy feels like another group of people but it kind of puts them on the same plane. So I'm feeling that in my shifting from Union Army to US Army, it reminds us that the US Army is the United States of America and the Confederate Army were fighting the United States of America. That's, that's great. I think that that is really important because when we talk about Confederate versus Union, it sounds like these two completely different entities other than the United States were created and had a battle. But the Confederacy was the completely different entity. Everybody else was the United States. Yeah, that's important. That's a good one. All right, we're gonna move into some other heavier thoughts around language. The first one that I have is about referring to the transatlantic slave trade as a Holocaust. There's a very specific image that comes to mind when people think about the Holocaust. I think adopting that word to talk about American slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, brings it to a place where I don't like to be, where people begin to compare. And there is no comparison between those two ordeals. They are two completely different experiences, yes. Slavery was a Holocaust. People are going to zoom into the word Holocaust and immediately have other thoughts and other opinions and begin a comparison in their head. And that's what I'm afraid of when using that word to refer to it. What do you think, Lee? I think that um, it's, a, it's a loaded word, right? Mm -hmm. This goes to that, the whole, the whole notion of the, that words matter. The 20th century annihilation methodical annihilation of um, not only Jewish people, but primarily Jewish people in Europe has acquired the single apex brain relationship to the word Holocaust. And while the transatlantic slave trade also dehumanized and also um, uh, eradicated uh, cultures and uh, livelihoods and individuals. The design 
of the transatlantic slave trade was to create a, a labor system rather than exterminate a population. So if that's what I'm hearing you say is, the, is, is your uh, concern about uh, creating uh, an equivalency between the two. Yeah, the transatlantic slave trade, the sole purpose of it was human labor. That was why, that was why it began. That's why it continued. Was and profit. Profit, money. It had nothing to do with mass murder. Was that a product of it? Absolutely. But it was not the goal, which is exactly why I feel like using that word to refer to it is, it can get confusing for someone that doesn't have all of the information that they need to have can start to create this kind of comparative conversation about the two experiences when there is there's nothing to compare because they serve two totally different purposes how frequently do you find the transatlantic slave trade being referred to as the holocaust um, as a as a holocaust not the holocaust capital letters a Holocaust. A Holocaust. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was in middle school, I went to a AME Zion church school. So predominantly black, very, very small school. And that is how it was referred to frequently. That was the first time I ever heard it. So in sixth or seventh grade, um, so this would have been the mid eighties question. Ah, no, 90s, 70s? <laughs> Not, no, I'm the old one. I know. <laughs> when was 90s? this? This was late nineties. Yes. Ooh. Late nineties. Uh, it was being in New Jersey to, in New Jersey. Yes. And it was interesting, right? Because at that time, I knew a lot about slavery and black history, but not a lot about the Holocaust. Ah. And then I went to high school and I learned a whole lot about the Holocaust. And I started to look back on the way that I was taught and the words that were used. And I, I thought to myself like, yes, I understand where the, where the impetus comes from to want to use that word to describe the transatlantic slave trade but it creates this terrible situation that I personally have been in where I have had arguments with people about how slavery and the Holocaust are not two things that you can compare. We can't talk about whether or not one was worse than the other, and we shouldn't uh, for many different reasons, but referring, using that word because, because that word is almost primarily used to describe that one specific event. Very rarely is it used to describe anything else. It creates this really hairy situation. Because it's, separate a, the two. it's a word that's become a symbol for a very specific event. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. That makes sense. So that one's difficult. Yeah. I have plenty of respect for people that choose to use it, but I challenge you to consider Consider the uh, consequences is such a strong word, <laughs> but to consider the uh, just to consider the context in the grand scheme of the story that you were trying to tell, if it is going to help or hinder the information that people are able to absorb. Hmm. Hmm. Ooh. <sighs> 
Next one. <laughs> <laughs> but this one's pretty, this one's pretty interesting as well. So do you remember when all those articles were floating around about the, uh, the textbooks that were being printed in Texas? Saying yeah, I remember. The enslaved people were migrant workers that came here by choice. Oh, okay. Taking that into consideration, one of the phrases that uh, is floating around for people to begin to use to describe enslaved people that were taken from Africa is referring to it as forced migration as opposed to kidnapped or stolen. Stop. <laughs> I, I'm just going to punctuate that. I mean, yeah. No, no, because the, 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 the idea of migration, there's agency, right? There's agency in the, in the concept of migrating, uh, of immigrating even. There's, there's agency. You might be leaving awful and awful situation where, where, from whence you come, um, but you're still making the choice mm. to go. So... Um, so now I'm going to put a punctuation mark on that. Now, <laughs> what, I, um, what I struggle with in this same conversation is that idea of, of stolen and kidnapped because I find myself, I hear myself talking about someone who has been stolen from Africa. And then in my brain, as my mouth continues working, I think, yeah, but that is also still giving that flavor of objectifying mm. a human being by saying they were stolen. Mm -hmm. is, a, is a human being stolen? I haven't put my own thumb on the right answer No, I can, see, I can see where you're going. I can see where you're going. Because there is, there is this sort of itemization that goes along with the word stolen. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, kidnapped also doesn't quite feel right, you know, because right. kidnapped is, do, it doesn't feel like a mass event. It feels like an individual event. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when you're talking about villages mm -hmm. um, being, being carried away from your village on a, on a boat you didn't ask to be on to go to a country you didn't ask to go to. I don't know. It's, it's a tricksy one for me. A word that is popping into my head that feels a little more appropriate is abducted. Mm. Because mm. I mean, whenever, when I think of abducted, you know, cause I'm a nerd, I think about aliens. Right. But it's like if an alien, you know, when, when you think about like nineties, alien abduction TV shows or whatever, the, the UFO comes and the beam comes down and swipes the people away and they're never heard from again. And that feels more like what happened to these people. Mm. You know, I think about children that were taken from their parents. They disappeared into thin air. Some entity came and abducted them and took them away. I love it. So maybe that's the proper, maybe that's, that, fe that feels right. Abducted feels right. Yeah. Yeah. I did a bit of a little Facebook survey. I asked people what came to mind when they heard the word plantation. And the results 
were very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, it uh, varied by generation. It varied by race. Uh, It also varied uh, probably by like sociopolitical party affiliation and all of those different things, but we didn't get into deep, deep things on that. Some of my favorite responses were one that was completely out of left field, but 101 Dalmatians, because there's a song in that film called Dalmatian Plantation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this person's mind apparently immediately went there on the more positive. And some people said uh, the the birthplace of jazz, the birthplace of blues, the place where, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a lot of African culture uh, molded into what we know now to be African-American culture. Making a way out of no way. Yes. Uh, There were also people that said uh, a beautiful home, Spanish moss trees, you know, they're Louisiana, you know, a a beautiful home with the wind blowing and lemonade on the porch and, you know, things, things like that. Wedding destination? Wedding destination, yes, was one of the responses as well. Um, And then, of course, there was the other end of the spectrum, the people that when they heard plantation, they thought death, murder, rape, uh, uh, bondage, slavery, all of those other things. So the question is, do we continue to refer to these places as plantations, given the large spectrum of places people's minds go when they think about it? Or do we refer to it as a forced labor camp? What do, what do you think? I feel like there is such power in the word plantation, especially in America. You know, I don't think plantations existed anywhere in the world. Well, I won't say anywhere in the world, but most places in the world, the way that they existed here. Um, mm. There are so many plantation houses all over the United States. Ones that, you know, ones that are still in people's families, ones that have been passed over to museum institutions, ones that are hotels now that people can go and get married at and spend their time and stay in the old slave cabin that's been uh, remodeled. And Papa Joe used to stay here and he was very kind and he was well taken care of kind of thing, you know? But there, there is a lot of power behind the word plantation in American culture. Um, I don't, I, I really believe that even the people that say, you know, when they hear the word plantation, they think of sipping lemonade on the porch with the wind blowing between their toes. They still are imagining themselves looking out on whatever the field is, on whatever crop it was that was being grown on said plantation who's handing you said lemonade that you're drinking, who's fanning you because it is hot wherever it is that you are on whatever porch it is that you're sitting on. There's no way to hear the word plantation and not think about slavery. There's a plantation that's five minutes down the road from me. I live right across the river from Washington, D.C. in Alexandria. And um, just down the road from me, five minute, seven minute drive, is George Washington's estate and gardens. 
and it is what is left of George Washington's 8,000 acre plantation. And um, when I work with students, I, I talk a lot about George Washington, of course, and I also talk about the, the 317 enslaved individuals that were working Mount Vernon at the time of Washington's death. And, and I say, you know, we're, we're going to George Washington's plantation. Um, what is a plantation? And the answer is farm, you know, you growing crops. And I always ask, what is the difference between a farm and a plantation in, in your mind? And the answer is always, who's doing the work there? Um, so I agree with you that, um, that there is a very uh, American heritage vision that pops into your head when you hear that word plantation. And uh, I think it's really interesting that you are acknowledging, that Margie, you're acknowledging that even though someone's first um, desired Im image is going to be the Scarlett O'Hara sitting on the porch with her two bows, we all know what else is a part of that picture. Maybe out of the range of mm -hmm. the image you're seeing in your, but, you, but we know, mm -hmm. we know. Um, I also wanna put a little plug in here that uh, you and I have talked about season two, going to Whitney Plantation mm -hmm. and going to Angola Prison uh, in Louisiana, which used to be Angola Plantation. Mm -hmm. And so if our listeners want to hear uh, live um, on-site impressions of, of our take on these, uh, these two environments, um, Go to the website and smash that donate button so that you can uh, help us go. Smash it. Smash it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about different words, words that make us uncomfortable, words that we feel like are inappropriate or appropriate for certain situations. But when does, and we already talked a little bit about this, but when does, when does shifting the language go too far? When does it start to shift what we're talking about as far as the history is concerned? Are there any, any words or phrases that you can think of that are being used or in talks of being used that could potentially be a detriment to what we're trying to achieve educationally? Oh, um... I, I'm sure there are, uh, you know, you and I have the advantage or disadvantage to spending, depending on your perspective of living on the East coast. Um, <laughs> and so we, our, our lives are constantly shifting at a, at a pace and conversations are shifting at a pace. What I would be interested in is targeting public history through tourism, through museums, through historical conversations, uh, and seeing what's happening there and the movements that are happening there. And it's, it's not a de detrimental conversation, it's a positive conversation, but I know it's happening. And the idea of decolonizing museums mm -hmm. is happening. Uh, the museum detox movement to try and shift language to be more inclusive. Do you I have anything that comes to mind? I don't, but uh, I, I want to touch on 
you were talking about a sort of museum and tourism uh, of movements as it were that were happening. Mm -hmm. And it's a good shift into uh, the last thing that I want to talk about, which is neutrality. Oh. And the museums are not neutral movement. Okay. You know, you're going to hit my, my, my passion button on this, right? Yes. I'm, doing I'm excited. I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this also, yes, I am ready because this also takes us back to the service word, right? Which is a neutral word. It is what, what, how did you refer to it earlier? Uh, uh, it's a code word, but it is like the code word for neutrality. There's no such thing as neutral. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Yes. There's no such thing as Neutral, unless you're talking about like a beige trench coat. Neutral refers to a, a propping up of the dominant power structure that has been historically in place. <sighs> mm. Okay. So, uh, particularly in tourism, this is a, a moment of heated fellowship that I have had with a lot of people because the conventional wisdom is that in interpretation, in commentary, in addressing our, our guests through service, we are supposed to stay neutral. I have always heard that and translated that accurately as staying within the traditional Western historical canon, which is predominantly white male Protestant gentry. So that's not neutral because if all you're going to talk about are the power players that we have traditionally referred to as the founding fathers, etc., etc., then you're leaving out everyone who is not white male Protestant gentry. Um, and that's not neutral. That's not neutral. Um, neutral, in, in my opinion, is making space for everyone to have their story heard. That's creating a, a, a space of inclusion. And inclusion, I think, is the word we should be aiming for rather than neutral. neutral right. Feelings, thoughts, concerns, hopes, fears, screams? I agree 100%. I really do. Even if we are sticking to the American history canon, we can't talk about those people without talking about the people that got them to all of those places that they went. These people are intertwined and entrenched in all of these stories. They are standing in the same room, breathing the same air, sharing this space. So there's no way to be neutral about it. There is being inclusive, like you said. There is including more of the story. Hey family, help us continue to bring you content. If you're loving what you hear, we'd love to have you show some of that love. Buy us a cup of coffee. Smash that donate button on our website. Better yet, buy these 20 seconds for your own ad time. Thanks. For this Ashe Corner, I would like to lift up Matthew and Anne Ashby. The Ashbys were a free black family living in 18th century Williamsburg, but they weren't always that way. 
Matthew Ashby was actually the product of an illegal interracial relationship, his father being an enslaved man and his mother being a servant white woman. Uh, during the 18th century, unions like this were illegal. The children that were the product of these unions were also illegal in a sense. Matthew Ashby had a brother and a sister. He and his brother, John, were indentured to Bruton Parish Church. Their sister was sent to another parish entirely. She was indentured until she was 21 years old. They were indentured until they were 31 years of age. I'm not really sure why this was the age that was chosen by the legislation to be the age of freedom, uh, but it was a very large portion of their lives that they spent in servitude to these churches. So once Matthew turned 31 and he uh, was legally a free man, he set out to use the many connections that he had established being indentured to the church. When you're indentured to the church, you're hired out to do all kinds of work for all kinds of people. Uh, and for him, one of those people was the governor at the time. And at some point in all of Matthew's adventures, he met his wife, Anne, who was an enslaved woman. She was enslaved to the brickmaker in Williamsburg, a man by the name of Samuel Spur. And Matthew, using all of his connections throughout the town, including the governor, was able to raise up enough money and petition the governor's council for his wife's freedom. Now, usually in order to obtain your freedom by petitioning the governor's council, you had to have performed some sort of meritorious service. Uh, a lot of people, uh, historians rather, uh, define meritorious service as a informing on some kind of insurrection or telling on another enslaved person. That's not always the case. In fact, more often than not, it was nursing a master or mistress through some sort of sickness or serving them tirelessly and with dedication throughout their entire life. There were very few people manumitted in this way in Williamsburg. So uh, it wasn't very often that something like this was happening, especially in this particular context with a formerly indentured servant having his wife be manumitted. But Matthew Ashby was able to make this happen. The documentation actually says that he stated that his wife was a uh, devoted wife and a loving mother and therefore should have her freedom. It would be a really beautiful story if we could say that that is truly why she was manumitted. But the reality of the matter is Matthew had those very, very strong connections to people in high places. And he was also a very hard worker. So he had the money in line and he had the connections in place to be able to petition for his wife's freedom. Unfortunately, very shortly after he was able to manumit Anne, he passed away. But she was able to live out the rest of her days as a free woman living in Williamsburg with her children, which as I said, is quite a feat in itself and very, very, very rarely happen during this time. There are only a handful of instances of people being manumitted and there are even a few instances of people after being manumitted being re-enslaved for one reason or another, but this wasn't the case for Anne. 
She was able to live out the rest of her days as a business owner, as a free woman, as independent as she could have been for an 18th century Negro woman living in Williamsburg. So we lift her up today in this Ashe corner. Ashe. This week, um, I would like to lift up the enslaved um, who were enslaved by a woman named Jane Hunter Charlton. So Jane Hunter Charlton was a milliner in Williamsburg. Um, she arrived to Williamsburg in the 1760s from England. She was a white woman. Growing up in England, she would not have personally experienced the institution of enslavement the way the colonies had established it. There would have been enslaved people in England, of course, but the regularity, um, the commonplaceness that the colonies had established by the 1760s. And I also often wondered what the experience for uh, for white Europeans coming to the established colonies um, with the established bondage of human beings would have been like for them. But she lived in Williamsburg for the duration of her life. She was a successful milliner, tradeswoman in her own right. Um, but when she died, uh, her will was really interesting. Uh, so she and her husband both dealt in luxury goods in Williamsburg. Um, and over the course of their living in Williamsburg, there were several enslaved individuals that were listed in their inventories um, in various correspondence, including one woman named Betty, who was their cook, enslaved cook. Um, but her will is, is striking because it gives us names in her will of the enslaved individuals in her household. This is not always common. Sometimes you don't find out the names until inventory, property inventories. Um, but having them specifically mentioned in her will uh, was, was, uh, is, is unique, um, interesting. Um, uh, and she specifically leaves, uh, she, um, uh, she specifically leaves them money and she uh, manumits them. So she provides them with their freedom uh, through the will. Um, one was named Nanny and one was named Sally. I don't know what their duties would have been in the house, but Nanny and Sally, both um, adult enslaved women, given their freedom uh, in 1802 by Jane Hunter Charlton. Um, she also specifically leaves good large new blankets to each of the women. But what's fascinating about Jane's will is not the manumission of Nanny and Sally, it's the children, the enslaved children that were also in the house. She sp specifically states in the will, having already freed my two mulatto children, Aggie, now in her seventh year, and Charlotte in her fifth year, tis my will and desire that they both receive their freedom at the age of 18 and that my niece, Elizabeth Robinson, on my decease, shall take Aggie under her care and protection until that period. If my niece, Jane Russell, should marry and settle, that she would take Charlotte under her care after my decease till she arrives to the age of 18, and trust that they will be kind to them for my sake, and that my two nieces, Elizabeth Robinson and Jane Russell, when the time of their servitude is expired, will clothe them decently and that they may not be sent out naked, penniless, and unprotected to an unfeeling world. Tis my desire that 
they be each furnished out of my estate with a good new blanket and each to receive at the age of 18, $10. And this I desire my friend Anthony Robinson to see duly and truly performed. So while we don't always know the interior sentiments of individuals, um, both free and enslaved, both white and black living in this society, we have these little glimpses um, and uh, knowing that Jane um, made certain in her legal document that Aggie and Charlotte and Nanny and Sally had provision in their free lives in the world um, is unique uh, and special. And uh, I lift up Nanny and Sally and Aggie and Charlotte Ashe. Thanks for joining us on our podcast adventures this week. Tune in for our next episode when we will have a bonus continuation of the historic timeline with our special guest, performer and museum interpreter, Jeremy Morris. Be sure to subscribe to our mailing list so we can keep you in the loop. And if you have a voice from our past you'd like us to highlight, be sure to let us know. www.52percentproductions.com That's the numbers 5 to percentproductions.com.